online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, how to drink Australian. Master sommelier Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross are here to talk about their definitive guide to the country's wine regions, taking in history, current trends, and maybe future designations too. To celebrate Australia's remarkable regional diversity. There has never been a more exciting time to drink Australian wine. So say master sommeliers Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross on the back cover of their chunky new tome, How to Drink Australian, home to more than 6,000 grape growers and 2,000 wineries. Australia produces around 4% of the world's wine and it's the fifth largest wine exporter with about 60% of its production for every year. That's uh, just over 600 million litres last time in the year to September being exported according to Wine Australia. The country is vast, of course, to the extent that just 0.35% of its land is given over to vines. And throughout the book, the authors highlight the incredible regional diversity that the country offers. Well, Jane and Jonathan join us now from the United States. Welcome both to The Drinking Hour. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. You're very welcome. There's loads to talk about. What inspired you to uh, set out to dedicate this much work to um, an entire wine nation? Well, so we met working in restaurants in New York. We worked at 11 Madison Park together. um, And in late 2016, I got a job offer to run the wine program at Attica in Melbourne. Um, So kind of a, another, another 50 best sort of, sort of restaurant. And, you know, we said, why not? We've we've never been to Australia before. This is our opportunity to go do something different, explore another side of the world. And and once we got to Australia, you know, we just were really blown away by people, the wines, the the diversity, the quality, and just kind of um yeah, pretty shocked that there wasn't greater access to Australian wines, Australian wine educational resources in the United States and that we really felt like the US and, and probably, you know, more more global audience in general was was missing out on, you know, this really special wine producing country. And you are both American and there's absolutely no reason yeah. that you have to be Australian to write a book about Australian wine, clearly, because that would be um, insane. That would mean you had to be um, French to write a book about Burgundy or whatever. But it is uh, sort of novel that you have identified, you say, these wines as the best and they're not the wines of your own country yeah i think you know our time on the ground in australia really formed special connections to wine in general i think maybe our circumstances might have made us fall in love with australia a little bit harder than someone would have from being outside the region but i guess that's the point putting an outsider in a new region kind of creates this 
incredible feeling of wonder and enchantment and enthusiasm that an insider wouldn't have. We also found that after being there for a while and really digging in, and we now import Australian wine to the U.S. Uh, and working in that industry, that Australia is perhaps the most diverse wine producing country in the world. It does it with greater ex- uh, respect to land care uh, and each other than most other countries. And when we say how to drink Australian in the book, um, we think that there's a lot that the world can learn from the Australian wine industry. What can the world learn from the Australian wine industry then? A, a few things. I think, you know, there's, as, as John was mentioning, minimum wage is very high in Australia. Everyone who who picks a grape to go into a bottle of wine is paid a livable wage and has health care and has what Australia calls superannuation, which is like their retirement kind of fund. And, um, you know, it's wine is created with a great respect to the people who are making it and um, in, in many parts also to to the land and the future of the land. There's also, you know, I, I feel like Australians have a great commitment to creating products of value. And I don't necessarily mean like the yellowtail uh, end of the spectrum, but just in general, if it's going to be a $30 bottle or a $50 bottle or an $80 bottle, it's going to look very good for those price points. I feel like the margins are a lot slimmer. People really, yeah, are interested in in not just kind of creating luxury icon wines, but really creating things that um, represent great value to the consumer. And that's really a priority in Australia. Talking of respect, uh, you devote a a sizable Uh, section of the introduction to uh, the issue of uh, Aboriginal rights, which obviously continues to be um, a pertinent um, issue in Australia. There was obviously a referendum very recently. Uh, Why did you feel it was necessary to uh, cover that off uh, at the start? I think we kind of do it in a few places where we try to be even more specific in a specific region and, and, and speak and acknowledge and be reverent towards specific First Nations when possible. You know, we while in Australia, if you spend time there, especially within the wine industry, there is, I think, the attention that we've given it in the book is in kind with the amount of attention that the wine industry of Australia is paying attention to and their re- reconciliation if efforts, acknowledgements, and really just there's a lot of land care lessons that agriculture and specifically viticulture is seeking out to learn from these communities across the country, which is pretty special. I think also from our own perspectives here in the U.S., the opportunity to learn about thousands of years of human history in Australia is kind of uh, the U.S. has similarly thousands of years of, of human presence here but access to those stories and interaction with those communities in the U.S. is is much further and less existent than it is in Australia. So I think it kind of maybe nourishes two different interests, both from the wine industry and kind of trying to communicate what's actually happening there, but also realizing that, you know, a lot of the U.S. wine-producing regions are just starting to wake up to the idea that there might be an issue with historic land rights and land care. And here's a country that's been really 
has decided to to make it a visible and an open conversation around those efforts. New world, old world, they are slightly absurd expressions, of course, and we generally obviously use them as a, a shorthand rather than being too literal. You make the very uh, compelling point that uh, while new world might be justified on the basis of it being a European system, the old world, that is, based on fine species indigenous to Europe, Australia must be one of the oldest worlds in wine. Just to elaborate a little on, on what you mean by that uh, rather nice line. Yeah, I mean, you've got the oldest mountain range on the surface of the earth in Australia. The oldest earth known earth materials uh, can be found in Australia. You've got upwards of 60,000 years of continued land care. In some cases, there's studies that might um, push that closer to 100,000 years, which would cause the reorganization of a lot of theories and thoughts about how humans have traveled around the world. You know, and, and I think those two things combined, when we talk about perhaps the oldest thing that humans have ever done is to manage land. And humans have been managing land in Australia for 60,000 years. Uh, in the U.S. for 20,000 years, you know, and, and I think when you combine that and again, these ancient soils, I mean, you talk about a billion year old soils in the Swan Valley or 500 million year old soils in Heathcote, you don't really have the opportunity to talk about that. And and while that's maybe a, an inconsequential superlative, you're at least you are tapping into the way it informs farming and resource management and how vintners and, and viticulturists approach regenerative agriculture and it really informs a lot of the dna of the country's wine regions yeah so i guess the point is that the history of wine doesn't begin at the introduction of vitis vinifera but it starts in how that land was cared for for you know millennia previously and where are you by the way on new world and old world do you use the terminology uh, yourself? I mean, some people kind of point blank refuse to say new world because it's absurd because Australia, for example, has been making wine for hundreds of years. And there's the other point you've just raised about how old its uh, uh, terrain is. Do, do you kind of use new world, old world yourselves? We try not to. We definitely came up in sort of an educational system, uh, the quartermaster sommeliers, that that used those words, but even the CMS is moving away from them. So we, you know, if we are trying to make a distinction between European and non-European, we'll just say European and non-European. Or, or, yeah, or name the country and so on. I think there was a time when it was very clear, you know, you think about wines 30 years ago, wines made in Europe might have been a little bit more savory and structured than things made outside of Europe. But then also from the perspective of trying to sell Australian wine in the U.S., Old world sounds better than new world. So why would we use those words if it is a disadvantage to selling Australian wine? Yeah, interesting. Less than 0.35% of Australia's land mass is planted to vine. I knew it was a, a low number. I didn't know it was quite that low, but it does make sense because the country is just so much bigger than anyone ever realises, I think. There's plenty of space and the maps in the book are excellent, really. For someone, uh, I have fairly shaky geography of Australia, so I found it, the maps really incredibly useful. They ram home the point about space as well, even within wine regions. Things are spread out, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, most wine regions 
themselves don't have more than, you know, a, a percentage of their land planted. I think the greatest is like Langhorn Creek. McLarenvale is pretty dense, but Barossa Valley at like 20%. Yeah, I mean, the Air Valley, but it's, it's, we figured out two thirds of the 65 wine regions across Australia have less than one, have less than 1% of their delimited area planted. And you think about Australia as this big bulk producing country. And the reality is that, you know, it's, that's the case for a couple regions, but, but it's quite sparsely planted. We always do a, a trivia question when we do trainings and stuff where it works out that Australia's vineyard surface is only about four and a half times the vineyard surface of Champagne. Yeah, which definitely surprises a lot of people when we ask that question. A lot of people guess a hundred times, a thousand times, because um, people think of Australia, yeah, as this bulk producing country, when in reality, most regions are quite small, most producers are quite small, and to your point about kind of space, there is a lot of diversity. You know, so many of these GIs are quite, quite different from one end to the other. And so Australia is really a country that sort of, you know, should require some regional specificity. But at the end of the day, most people don't even think about the individual GIs. It's just sort of all Australian wine is lumped together. Yeah. And the way those GIs or um, appellations are classified or the way they've been demarcated it might be better to say um is to a great extent actually based on political kind of state boundaries isn't it yeah and also an old you know pre-australian federation county lines like the yarra valley is based on this old county that was drawn in the 1870s and you've got parts of you know regions where it's, you know, half national forest, a thousand meters up in elevation that'll never be planted. And, you know, it's kind of something where we get it, you know, and, and why that might exist. And maybe, you know, there's some parts in the book where we identify places for greater specificity. But yeah, right now, you've it's really just a matter of proving provenance. You know, this fruit came from this place and, and it almost starts and stops there. I think the debate on regional diversity will probably be furthered enormously by your book, actually, to be honest. You make the point that there's there are sort of zones within regions and then subzones within those zones. So uh, there are relatively few, I think 14 of these sort of smaller subzones that have so far been properly recognised. That's right, isn't it? You know, it's there hasn't been a new GI in Australia since I want to say like 06 or 07. So it's really was sort of what if there were significant subregions that had enough production and had kind of a, a history of unique production that were able to be delineated at the time of original GI formation, right? So it's like Adelaide Hills, when it was formed in the probably late 90s, you know, you had these two unique regions, Lenswood and Piccadilly Valley. And so they were codified. And you probably had some champions for them within each of the regions who were pushing for those to be codified. And enough production to qualify. Yeah. Whereas there, there hasn't been really much going back and let's adding in a subregion. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. But I do think in general, there's sort of this attitude in Australia that things are already a bit complicated, right? Like 
why designate subregions of Margaret River when most of the world doesn't even know what Margaret River is? And I, I get that, but I don't think either of us agree with that. We kind of, you know, I don't think anyone would care about Burgundy if there wasn't Von Romanet and, you know, and, and more specific vineyards. And um, so for us, we really think that there should be this, this great sub-regional recognition. Now, you don't want to go too far and all of a sudden have 100 new GIs. But um, we do believe that some greater specificity and, and yeah, it is our hope that the book will help provide that, even though clearly not on an official level, producers are still allowed to label by their subregions. So we're hoping that there is more people who are going to say, well, you know, I'm in, I'm in the Morable Valley in Geelong. Let's make sure we label Morable Valley because that is such a different part than Bellarine Peninsula or Surf Coast or whatever it is. So um, yeah, we really believe that there needs to be more discussion about the regional uh, specificity in Australia. Yeah, I agree. And I think it, this will, as I said, further the debate. It also, for those of us who are, are reading the book and, and love wine, it, it does make you think, oh, I need to try one of those. So <laughs> uh, this is this is a very good thing. Um, at the other end of the scale, you, you reference, uh, obviously, the humongous region that is called Southeast Australia. I mean, that to me, given the size of Australia, that's sort of like saying the region of France, Italy and Spain. Um, and uh, it's, um, there is a reason for it, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think in Australia, the, the country Australia, the country is not a GI or an Appalachian. And I believe in order to qualify for export to the EU, it needed to have an Appalachian smaller than a country. So like, for example, in, uh, in the U S there's a lot of, of mass grocery store brands that are blended from wines across States and they just bear the Appalachian America. And that wine would not be allowed to be imported into the EU because it's just a country Appalachian. And, you know, it, it, it's too bad in a sense because, you sometimes associate it with like, oh, this must be some sort of bulk produced, you know, wine sourcing from hundreds of different vineyards. But there are instances like we have a producer who's based in the Granite Belt in Queensland that they're just on the border of New South Wales. And so they work with they have their own estate vineyard and then they work with a couple sites um, just over the border. That's literally like a couple kilometers away. And they have to label southeastern Australia because they're sourcing from two different states. And that is another funny thing that Queensland would be considered Southeastern Australia, but it is. And it's the same, you know, we have a producer who's doing a Chardonnay from both Henty and Victoria and parts of Limestone Coast in South Australia, which again are right there. And to your point about some of the boundaries being more political, you know, those regions have a lot in common, even though they're on different side of state lines. So you almost wish there was a, a different category people could use or maybe putting multiple GIs on the bottles. But Southeastern Australia, yeah, has been sort of a catch-all for things like that. But then also, yes, for some more of the bulk stuff that's just getting grapes from from everywhere. As you say, it's a, uh, kind of insane that Queensland's in there as well. But, uh, but yeah, yes. that's, uh, um, that's the way it is. Um, the book is broken down into these um, weighty sections then based on the, uh, the, the, the larger regions. It's impossible to do justice to, to those in the time we have, clearly, because this is a sizable 
uh, tome. Uh, but uh, and people need to buy the book as well, frankly. But um, but taking a headline <laughs> view, um, if we can, perhaps with an eye to the trends emerging or the things that you might not know, the key movers maybe. Let's just look at, at those sort of sections in in headline terms. So New South Wales is, I suppose, arguably the most famous state for tourists. It's where Sydney is, but not as famous as some others for, for wine necessarily. Although we've got uh, Murray Darling, we've got uh, the Hunter Valley, of course, there. New South Wales, what would you say about that in sort of headline, trends emerging, things to look out for kind of terms? I, I would say get into the mountains. Um, you know, I think New South Wales, it's funny you mentioned tourism to Sydney. And oftentimes people take a, a day trip to the Blue Ridge Mountains and, or, or to the Blue Mountains rather and the Blue Ridge Mountains are in North Carolina. <laughs> but, but there's a, a, a really wonderful set of a number of regions that kind of run through the Great Dividing Range and then kind of continuing down all the way into the very alpine sections of, of Australia. Uh, everything from, you know, there's a, a region called Orange whose uh, limits are, or borders are drawn by a 600 meter uh, elevation yeah, mark. So everything's over 600 meters. And we think Australia is flat. It's, you know, it's desert, but reality is it, it gets some elevation. So there's just following those elevation lines are really wonderful. It's a bit of a drive out of Sydney. I think Orange is maybe two and a half hours, but then everything else is a bit further. You can go into Canberra, which is, uh, you know, the nation's, the capital territory. And from there and south, you head even further up into Alpine terrain. There's a quote from a winemaker that says some of the best sites in Australia have yet to be discovered. And this Alpine area of Australia is certainly falls into that category. But at the same time, you know, some of the most remarkable base wines for sparkling wine or Chardonnay come out of these areas. There's a, a wonderful, a, my favorite Penfolds wine is the Yatarna Chardonnay. And historically, a lot of the Chardonnay came from Tumbarumba. We call it that this region should be called the Alp, the snowy mountain zone of Australia, not southern New South Wales zone. But that's definitely a place worth exploring in New South Wales. Yeah, I think, you know, Hunter Valley gets a top billing and, uh, you know, not in any way to diminish what Hunter Valley has achieved. But but that's sort of sometimes where it starts and ends for people in New South Wales. So we definitely want to encourage people to yeah think about the more kind of, yeah, inland mountainous regions in New South Wales. Yeah, it was interesting reading that. And uh, years ago, when I was in Australia, I decided I'd take the train from Sydney to uh, Canberra, just to see what Canberra was like. And um, it, it was one of the most boring cities I've ever been to, actually, unfortunately. <laughs> but but I um, loved the train ride and the scenery uh, around those. Uh, the journey was, was just spectacular. So it was still very much... Um, worth doing even if the uh, the destination wasn't quite as exciting but let's take another region this is one that's much more famous i suppose for its uh, many and varied wine regions victoria you say such is the uh, regional diversity in victoria that there is no such thing as victorian wine yeah and you know i think Attempts to simplify and distill it are, are always difficult. You know, in general, people think of Victoria as being somewhat cooler climate. And I that certainly is true. But there's people making everything from really successful sparkling wines to great 
Grenache and Mavedra across across Victoria, um, you know, from kind of pretty warm climates to quite cool. And so you really, you know, you have the opportunity to do everything there and do it quite well. You know, I'd say a really high density of just very premium quality oriented wine regions and, you know, certainly kind of leading the charge in a lot of styles. And and it's such a fun place to visit because you can kind of center yourself in Melbourne and be in, in a variety of different wine regions within an hour or two. And so it's, we always, we always, I mean, we're a little biased because we lived in Melbourne for three years and absolutely loved it. But it's such a, if you're wine interested, it's such a great place to visit because you can really see so many different regions that are just short short rides from Melbourne. And the Victorian Alps look stunning. Oh yeah. Yeah. The Victoria's and and that Victorian Alps again move into that New South Wales Alps. That Alpine center of, of Australia is just really exciting for viticulture, but also just touring around in general. It's 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 quite striking. But yeah, there's regions up there. Beechworth, I think, comes to mind as a region that needs to be re-examined by people it's it's been at the top of quality production in victoria for so long but or maybe decades but very few wines from beechworth leave the country and if you go to any restaurant any wine shop across australia that beechworth is one of those regions that persists beyond local favoritism and everyone has something from beechworth on the menu it's 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 odd that where one producer from Beechworth, two producers from Beechworth actually gets out of the region and into the US. Wow. Okay. Uh, Tasmania next. Um, and this is <laughs> a region that uh, I've not been to, um, that I would like to go to. And uh, he's producing some um, uh, fantastic wines, obviously uh, celebrated for its sparkling wine. Um, is it too simple to say it's a, a kind of cooler climate region? I mean, I think it's a good start. It definitely is. It's the coldest climate overall wine region in Australia. You know, what's so interesting about Tasmania is so Tasmania, if you just look at kind of a a heat summation figures, Tasmania is about the same temperature of champagne, actually a little bit cooler. But it sees about a thousand more sunlight hours in a year than champagne does. And so this just really opens up the door for a much wider uh, range of, of successful styles in Tasmania than champagne. And so, yes, you see great sparkling wine, but incredible, you know, still Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. We think the Riesling is some of the best in the country. And just a, a good amount of experimentation to everything from Grunewaldliner to Trousseau to, you know, a, a wide variety of things. There's even people that are crazy enough to try to ripen Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah and do so a couple times a decade quite well. You know, it's nuts to talk to people in Australia that are, you know, someone might be in, you know, the Yarra Valley or, or somewhere else that's not far picking in March or and people in Tasmania are getting started in May. Uh, it's a pretty, it can be a pretty late harvest and that dryness that Jane talks about with rain shadow effects creating all those sunlight hours means you have this fairly cool but long kind of drawn out ripening phase and that happens across a number of regions in Australia that allows for things like Cabernet to inch closer towards ripening over a long period of time and the wine it's it's nuts that you could see someone produce really tart linear styles of 
sparkling wine, and Cabernet in the same place. But they do. It is nuts. Yeah. Uh, South Australian <laughs> next, which is a sort of fairly generic sounding catch-all for some really celebrated uh, wine regions, isn't it? Yeah. And it's really a, a spectacular place to visit. And it's, you know, if, you, if you're in Adelaide, you're within an, an hour of McLaren Vale, Adelaide Hills, Barossa, a little bit further up to Clare Valley. You know, I think you know, certainly Barossa Valley is is probably the most famous Australian wine region, but I think it would surprise anyone the kind of great diversity of styles you're seeing there, not to mention just the wealth of old vine material. Like it's pretty cool that you can just go visit vines that have been in the ground since, you know, the, the middle of the 1800s and are producing wine that's remarkably affordable. And then, you know, you drive an hour south and you're in the Adelaide Hills and it's a much younger wine region, very sort of like fresh and green and lush and high altitude. And there are apple orchards and cherry orchards. And it's just a very, it's cool to, I I think that's maybe the most remarkable sort of 45 minute drive from like Southern Barossa into Northern Adelaide Hills. and, And you really see an entirely different climate and like a different culture too. And it's, you can kind of get everything and, you know, McLaren Vale you know, a lot of times, especially for the U.S., McLaren Vale and Barossa are often lumped together when talking about wine regions and producing similar styles. But McLaren Vale really has an amazing personality of its own, and it's really been influenced by its seaside location. And they've really taken taken on um, so many alternative grapes. You know, there is Chardonnay planted in McLaren Vale, but it's not what people are excited about or talking about. They're talking about Fiano and Marsan and of course Old Vine Grenache. Nerd Avila and and all sorts of different things. And then, you know, not even to mention going further south and going into the limestone coast, which I think ends up being less visited because it is so far from it's about equidistant between Melbourne and Adelaide. Um, so it's a, it's a trek, but, um, but, you know, offers, uh, you know, a, a really unique wine society almost like it's, it, I think it's, you, you're kind of Kunawara, Rattenbully area. Rarely do you see in Australia, even with, you know, Shiraz dominant regions, such a devotion to kind of one grape in particular being Cabernet Sauvignon and really a handful of grapes. Um, but they're still really pushing hard for innovation and a lot of respects to produce the best versions of those grapes. So yeah, another, another kind of uh, pretty spread out wine producing state. And, and you, even, even then you're talking about the very sort of South Eastern corner of South Australia. Um, but it, you know, there's, there's just, uh, yeah, an amazing, amazing diversity to be yeah, had. About 50% of the state is desert. So we're hugging the coast on this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, talking of vast expanses of, of land, um, Western Australia, uh, the uh, Western third of the landmass of Australia, and it says here in the introduction to that chapter, if uh, Western Australia was its own nation, it would be among the top 10 largest globally, which is just uh, mind blowing. Um, and when we think about Western Australia, or certainly when I think about it anyway, I tend to really home immediately in on uh, Margaret River. 
Yeah, yep. and Margaret River is an absolutely spectacular wine region. Um, but, you know, we actually talk about a lot, you know, even in just the the kind of two years since really three years since we've sort of solidified the structure of this book, there's a region in Western Australia that has evolved so much that it's deserving of its own chapter. Swan Valley, we grouped into the other Western Australia bunch at the end. And we already talk about that as if there's a second edition of this book, that region will get its own chapter. Yeah. I mean, the Swan Valley is, it predates viticulture in Margaret River by over a hundred years. And it's kind of having, I don't want to say the Renaissance, but it's, it's starting to have a little bit of a similar look to what the McLaren Vale and the Barossa have done with identifying these old vineyards, farming them in ways better than ever, and making styles of wine that are both fresh and bright and also intense and impactful. And it's a pretty exciting place to see things like Chenin Blanc and Grenache from. And then, you know, I mean, the whole great Southern area is is really exciting. And talk about another place that you have a GI or an Appalachian, then you've got all these other nested subregions within it. Some parts along the coast are just, it's it's so far and removed away. I mean, we always try to look at getting there whenever we're in Australia and we're like, well, we're going to have to drive for 20 hours and it's just what's going to have to happen. But it's, it's really just seems like a remarkable place. Riesling has been excelling there for a long time. There's a, a small little faction of people growing savory styles of Syrah and making sparkling wine. And there's just endless diversity within just Great Southern. And I think Western Australia, you can really point to, you know, there are surely a lot more great growing regions that just haven't been adequately explored because there really is a tyranny of distance in Australia where if you're, you know, if you're even in an established region like Great Southern, there's a real struggle to get the labor out there that you need to, to you know, just even to for trucking to get your, your wine out of the region or to get the supplies you need in is very challenging. Imagine if you would just wanted to go further out in the middle of nowhere and plant a vineyard might be an incredible site for it, but there's just not sort of the infrastructure to make it work. So, yeah, I mean, you think about, you know, you get out of enology school, you're 23, 24 years old. You can go live outside of Adelaide near the city. You can work in McLaren Valley, you can surf on the weekends. You have a great life. You go live in Mount Barker or, you know, Kunawara and there's maybe three people your age and you're a half, a three hours, four hours from a decent sized city. So there's that lifestyle hindrance for people who are making wine kind of in these vast expanses. They're making exceptional wine, but unless they want to dedicate their lives to just making that wine, it's the labor pool is, is much smaller. Yeah. I mean, you're American. Think what uh, uh, England must look like to uh, yeah. uh, must look like a model village to uh, a typical Australian. Um, <laughs> those uh, distances that you talk about. Uh, the final section, Queensland. Now, a lot of people would be very surprised, especially people who've been to Queensland, which I have uh, long ago on holiday. The climate there does not immediately suggest wine. No, no. You think Queensland? You think the Great Barrier Reef and beaches and and subtropical climate, but there are two 
uh, delineated wine regions in Queensland. One is South Burnett, which is quite warm. And the other is Granite Belt, which uh, is actually very moderate. I mean, basically, if you drive sort of three hours um, west of Brisbane up into the Great Dividing Range, you'll be in Granite Belt. And it's really on the New South Wales border. So it's, you know, as, as far south as you can get in Queensland. And it's pretty high elevation. The Appalachian runs from like 700 to 1,000 meters above sea level. So that elevation is really helping you mitigate the heat of, of the region. Yeah, in the middle of the summer, their diurnal change in temperature is upwards of 30 degrees Celsius uh, between day and night. So they're, uh, and they have snow, they get snow every year, it snows often in the winter. And on the coast, it's like trying to make wine in Miami, but then you're, you get all these benefits of elevation and it's pretty unique. And it's funny you mentioned that because a lot of people have said to us that everyone in Queensland is so excited that they got their own section of the book. Um, but it's, it's pretty remarkable. And, and the Granite Belt itself has had this pretty large resurgence in Australia from COVID um, because people couldn't really travel uh, outside of their different state boundaries. And so a lot of people from Brisbane were going to the Granite Belt for weekend holidays, wine tourism. And, and it was a lot of times the first introduction to the producers of Queensland that, or the Granite Belt rather, that, that these Queenslanders ever had. So it's experienced that rush and it really hasn't gone away since, which is pretty great. I read with interest that they're making good Saparavi, a Georgian grape variety, of course, um, and one that I really love. I think it's an incredibly exciting variety. And they're growing that in Queensland. Absolutely. There's really been, uh, you know, because it's a region that's so, you know, Granite Bell is so little known, you know, to certainly to the rest of Australia, you know, not known at all to the rest of the world, that there is really a freedom in, well, we don't have to stick to any particular grape. We can really explore any sort of grapes that, that might work well for our vineyards. The, the regional kind of wine body does a few different wine tours, but one of them I believe is called the rare bird wine tour where they just take you around to a lot of the producers doing, you know, planting these, you know, alternative grape varieties and making, you know, off the beaten path styles of wine. And it really has become part of the identity for the region. Yeah. Well, it's uh, certainly a great sort of advertisement for Queensland's wine producers, actually just the very fact that they exist for a headline, uh, reasons um yeah. but th- there's a, a reference well many references uh, to the langton uh, classification throughout the book and i confess um i had to go and look this up actually this is a kind of aussie version of of a sort of almost a bordeaux classification yeah and and the bordeaux classification is a good uh, comparison because it isn't this isn't a bunch of like wine professionals sitting around in a room deciding what the best wines are, it really is, it's based on prices at auction. So it really is a reflection of Australian spending habits and the, and the wines that, that people are going to spend money on. Um, so yeah, Langton's is not, is they do the classification, but their main sort of identity is as the premier wine auction house in, in Australia. Um, so, you know, for us, we kind of, you, we want to, take it at that level where it clearly is a very important metric of 
of the wines, the regions, the grapes, the styles, the producers that people are are spending money on. And, and you know, that ultimately is in, in many ways what's sort of most important, uh, you know, not just what someone thinks is good, but what's what people are actually willing to spend money on. So so those are certainly recognized as sort of the the icon wines in Australia. Yeah, interesting. As I say, it was uh, new to me. It probably shouldn't have been, but it, it, it was. Uh, it's uh, something that's evidently extremely well known uh, within the Australian wine market, but uh, maybe doesn't quite make it overseas in the same way. And um, we can't, we haven't got time to talk about grape varieties because um, the reality is they'll grow um, pretty much anything in Australia and, and often extremely successfully, won't they? Yeah. And I think, you know, when we always have these conversations about sustainability in the wine world, it kind of starts with grape variety choice. And, or it and, should start. Or it should start. And I think a lot of producers in Australia recognizing they're in drier climates or maybe they have high UV or various soil types and so on. They really kind of have taken all of the boundaries off of what grape variety can go where. And the domestic consumption is so varied and so kind of inquisitive and experimental that at this point, it's not odd for someone to, you know, try an Assyrtiko from the Clare Valley or a Naradavala from Heathcote. I can remember in the group of restaurants I worked with, we had an Italian restaurant and my first kind of week working with them, I went to go work service in the Italian restaurant just to acclimate myself and went up to a table and they said, oh, we love, you know, some Nebbiolo. So I opened to the the Barolo Barbaresco page. And they said, no, nah, mate, we're looking for Australian Nebbiolo. And we had 12 selections from seven different producers. And I was just flabbergasted. I was like, wow, I can't just walk onto the floor of an Australian restaurant and work service because I know absolutely nothing about <laughs> what's going on here. And just like, you know, seeing Sangiovese grown in a number of places. And Jane would bring me home blind tastes of things that she saw during the day because I was prepping at the time. And I'd say, oh, this tastes like Brunello, and it'd be Australian Sangiovese or this, you know, and it was just endless. But Italian grapes really do thrive in the country and, and are making the most headway in that maybe alternative section. Nebbiolo is one of the most difficult uh, to grow. Are they doing a, you know, a, a good job of it uh, in your experience? Absolutely. It's not the climates for successful Nebbiolo are not as common, I think, as the climates for successful Vermentino or Fiano or Nerdavola, but there are definitely a handful. And I don't think they look exactly like, you know, Longue, Nebbiolo, Barolo, Barbaresco, but they are not supposed to. You know, I think the, the idea is at its best that you're seeing a different a different expression. But I think when you don't have that Alpine, really that Alpine section of Victoria and is is probably the most successful area. There's a couple examples in the Yarra Valley that are really wonderful. Um, but, you know, there are scenarios where people maybe have planted them where they're planting other Italian grapes too. And it goes from this really filigreed, structured, savory expression. And like the next day, if they pick it, it's all, it tastes like blueberries. Mm. And it seems like it's a, it's a, it's probably a grape in Australia, at least and in certain places that really requires the perfect pick date. But then there's in those alpine areas, it seems like there's a little bit more forgiveness where it finds its most success. 
Yeah, well, I'm going to look out an Australian Nebbiolo because I've loved that grape variety, but I, um, I've never had one. So um, I'm definitely going to seek one of those out. And there are a number of, of different wines, very many actually, in in the book as I've been reading through it over the last uh, week that where I thought, actually, I've I've got to find this. So yeah, you're going to help them sell some wine. That's for sure. Um, with this. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Talking of which, we uh, always end our interviews uh, uh, on the drinking hour with um, a desert island wine. And I know it's a really difficult question because it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, well, it's just really hard to answer. But, um, uh, but you know, if you could only, you're stuck on a desert island, hopefully you're stuck on a desert island together, because at least you can have two desert island wines, then one each. <laughs> but what would you choose? I'm assuming in this context it would probably be australian it doesn't have to be but what would be your desert island wine each of you and so we're talking about one specific wine yes. producer just one yep and it's uh, that's all you can have and it's got to be it's a kind of it's it's the equivalent of the death row thing but that's all a bit macabre and depressing so we tend to think the desert island's a bit nicer than death row really but it's, you get the idea yes all right i'm I'm not going to choose one of our producers because it's too hard to choose amongst your your babies. But I would say, I'll say the Yalumba Tricentenary Grenache. So this is uh, Yalumba's Grenache vines that were planted in the late 1800s. Just a, a really gorgeous expression. And I'm trying to remember the last vintage I had, they tend to release with a little bit of age, but like 20... 13 i remember being excellent so i'll go with 2013 yalumba tricentenary grenache yeah that's a superb choice by the way that uh, is a wine i uh, have tasted and really love so that's you that's yours jane what about you jonathan well i always like the preface this and say that i'd rather drink a pina colada for the rest of my days on a desert island than wine but you know i think i'm trying to think there's a there was a wine that blew jane and i away when we visited them there's a producer in the Macedon Ranges called Cobal Ridge um, and their Chardonnay. I think it was a 2018 vintage that we had. It was one of those Chardonnays where there's that like reverberating energy on the palate that's just juicy and energetic and you kind of just can't stop drinking it. And I think if Jane's picked a red, I should pick a white so that we have, you know, enough to drink on this island. Um, So yeah, that's that's where I'd end up. Yeah, great. Well, it's a damn sight more interesting than a pina colada as well, I think. So, um, uh, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, second that. It's really impossible to do justice in uh, granular detail, as I said at the start, to to this mighty tome. But it's a fantastic book. It's a really amazing reference book, but it's got sort of coffee table um, beauty as well. So uh, congratulations on it. It must have been a a massive amount of of work. And thanks so much for coming on from the state and sharing it with us, uh, Jane and Jonathan. Oh, thank you so much for yes, having us. Thank we you really very appreciate much. it. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. Well, let's round off as ever with the medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame in 2023. And our focus, of course, is Australia. We have a host of uh, medals from Margaret River, but we have a special edition dedicated to that region coming up just in the next few weeks. So we're going to save those 
uh, golds, plenty of them, uh, for that particular edition. Elsewhere, not just a gold medal winner, but a trophy winner too. So an award for best in show for this first wine, Leo Burring, Leone, mature release Riesling 2017 uh, from Eden Valley in South Australia. I uh, love those Rieslings from there. Uh, Master of Wine, Alex Hunt oversaw the judging panels here. And this particular panel included our friend Freddie Bulmer from the Wine Society, uh, retired Michelin star chef Roger Jones, Victoria Sharples, Australian herself, but uh, based in the UK with her own fabulous wine bar, and uh, Ray O'Connor, MW of Naked Wines. And here's what they said. Enchantingly ripe on the nose with evolved aromas of ripe lemon, freshly struck match, tropical fruit and oriental spice. The palate is gorgeously layered with masterful lingering flavours of juicy mango, succulent kiwi fruit and perky peach. Truly exquisite, they said. To the McLaren Vale next, the same panel awarding a gold and 96 points to this wine. Gem Tree Wines, Ernest Allen Shiraz 2021. The tasting note said this, absorbingly extravagant with elegant aromas of plush black fruits and earthy peppercorns. The palate is broad and focused with silky flavours of luscious cherries, juicy plums and a wonderful hint of savoury yeast. Magnificent. And another Shiraz from the McLaren Vale, uh, doing very well too. Penny's Hill Skeleton Key Shiraz 2021, another gold medal winner. Uh, the tasting note, beautifully elegant with gorgeously dense aromas of black forest gatto and sweet violets. Boasts a broad, glossy palette with deliciously energetic flavours of crunchy plums, juicy blackberries and a grind of beguiling black pepper on the gloriously long finish. Lovely tasting note. To Adelaide Hills next, Wolf Blass Grey Label Chardonnay 2019 won a gold medal from another exacting panel, which included Matteo Montoni, MS, Beth Pierce, MW, Andrew Johnson and Matthias Kowalczyk. And they praised a very complex nose showing pithy citrus, yellow apple, toast, ripe stone fruit and vanilla aromas. The palate is nutty with a lovely concentration of tropical fruit and elegantly integrated oak. Outstanding balance and a precise, clean finish. And finally, rounding off with something sweet from Rutherglen, of course. Morris Wine, Cellar Reserve, Grand Topac, non-vintage, won a gold medal with 95 points. And here's the tasting note. A deep, raisin-like intensity unfurls on the nose, accompanied by a dried fig note, drizzled with decadent dark treacle. The palate displays extraordinary length and concentration, with a delicious burnt sugar character and layers of nutty complexity. Superb, they said. And what a way to finish. That's it for this episode. My thanks to Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross, authors of How to Drink Australian. That's uh, from Murdoch Books, by the way, if you're looking out for it. And it's uh, £40. My thanks to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that and do see you again next time. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.